for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. In the last episode featuring Dr. Gareth Morris, we spoke of his journey into temporal lobe epilepsy research, his passion for communication with people with epilepsy, and how his blog Epilepsy in English, that is .ie, came about. This week on the programme, we are talking to Dr. Gabrielle Lignani, Principal Investigator, Senior Research Fellow and Biotechnologist from the Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery London, who in his lab is researching gene therapy for epilepsy. If you're new to the channel, do make sure that you subscribe and hit the bell for notifications. This is a weekly podcast slash video. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us. Welcome, Gabrielle. It's great to meet you here. Please tell us about yourself and what got you into gene therapy research for the epilepsies. Thanks, Tori. Thanks for the, the invitation, first of all. So I'm a scientist. I'm a researcher at the University College London, and uh, I'm working at, in the Department of Clinical Experimental Epilepsy. The focus of my lab is basically to find new treatment for epilepsy. I started uh, to study biotechnology in Italy, and then I did also a PhD in experimental medicine. And there I was studying the pathophysiology mechanism of epilepsy and autism as well. And then I decided to move to UK. It was like six years ago now, almost seven years ago. I joined the, the department and uh, there there was a, a program on uh, gene therapy for epilepsy that was led by... Professors Dimitri Kuhlman, Stephanie Schorge, and Matthew Walker. And basically, I joined them to help them to develop new treatment, innovative treatment for epilepsy. So, what made us so lucky to have you? Why did you move countries? To be honest, I, I, the idea was to come in the UK, stay two years, and then go back to Italy, learn new things, and then go back to Italy. But at the end, it's seven years now that I'm here in the UK. And I think that we stay a bit more longer here. And um, yeah, I decided to move abroad, and uh, because I, I think that uh, for science and for research in general, it's very important to have to see different uh, point of view, different uh, research systems, different cultures, so to, to create your own idea and uh, your own uh, way to do research. And I wanted to work on epilepsy, and actually UCL and uh, the department, our department, is the, the best one in, in the world at the moment for this kind of research, so it was an easy choice for that. And I hear that the team that you work with is rather marvellous as well, is that true? Yeah, the team that I, I joined at the, the, in the department, yes. Very nice environment and very clever people to work with, for sure. <laughs> Are you still working like with the guys in Italy? Do you continue that sort of that relationship to benefit each side how does it work yeah actually i'm still in contact with the people that i was working with and 
when I was working in Italy, I had also different collaboration with other people in Italy that I have still at the moment. It's, it's going on for more than eight, ten years now. And uh, yeah, I keep going with this collaboration because I think that is quite uh, useful for both sides. And uh, we did uh, quite uh, great discoveries and uh, and uh, and achievement with this collaboration. So I think that the collaboration in our field is one of the most important things at the moment because obviously you cannot do everything. And if you want to do something very well and make a difference, you need to to rely on, on, on the expertise of others and collaborate with them. Exactly. And I do think that there's, you know, a sort of a, well, obviously that didn't used to happen um, in the past. And now with the, the benefits of technology, we can just so easily do that. And it's just as well, given COVID as well, of course. Also, the technologies moved forward. There are a lot of new technologies. And obviously, you cannot be expert of, any, of everything because the, 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 the technology is even always more complicated and uh, new, new things are going out every day. And so if you want to use the, the, the cutting edge and innovative technologies, you need those to rely on expertise of other people because if not, it would be impossible to follow everything. And what are these types of people? I like, do we have people from lots of different professions? Like I've met some mathematicians where I've just been like in awe of their level of intellect. Um, tell us more about that. Like, who do you work with? I'm working with a lot of different uh, professions that would be biologists, biotechnologists like me, obviously clinicians, neurologists, uh, engineer, mathematician, physicist. Uh, also bioinformaticians, that is quite a new category of, of, of people. And uh, yeah, behavioralists, uh, there are a lot of different uh, geneticists, uh, there are a lot of different uh, kind of professions that can help in neuroscience and in epilepsy for sure. Well, it's certainly something for my, myself, I didn't used to know how many professions had to be involved in effective, productive research. And I think it just makes it much more exciting and, and hopefully encourages, you know, people who are thinking getting into research. Do you know what, mate? There's likely to be a slot yes. for you there if you're really passionate about it. I can only imagine there's this awful right reputation of people who, who are very clever um, and who work in um, academia of being dull as anything. But I've just met, including yourself, of course, some lovely people who are just doing this Yes, because it's exciting. Yes, because it stimulates you intellectually and that's really important. But also you care and you're actually making a difference. And that's kind of like what gets you through the hard days. Exactly. And yeah, I, I agree with you. There are people that probably are not the best people to work with, but it's every, everywhere is like this, obviously. Right. In academia, there are very nice people we work with and obviously when you find them, you continue to, to work with them and collaborate with them. I, I think there are a lot of people that care. I've heard that it's quite beneficial for you guys as well to see outside of the paperwork, outside of the computer and the lab, and actually kind of just sometimes learn a little bit about more about us and yeah. the benefits that you are bringing to people's lives in the future, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's very important. And, and for that, that I appreciate your work huh? <laughs> to disseminate <laughs> and the show, uh, basically, and, uh, and uh, help patients to have a voice <laughs> and uh, I think that for us is very important as well because 
obviously this contact with the, with the, with the patients uh, is something that helps us to wake up in the morning and be to go to work and say, okay, we can make a difference now. Thank you. That's so lovely. Because even if your work, you know, didn't benefit me, for instance, it gives me that gooey feeling knowing that it benefits other people. And I think something that can be really quite frustrating um, for people like yourself and scientists and stuff sometimes is that you don't know when the answer is going to come and you don't know what the future holds. But then you can turn that round and that makes it quite exciting. Almost like, I mean, I don't gamble, but I expect some people, when they gamble, they don't know. Am I going to win? And that's what it, what science makes me think of sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sometimes it's a bit like this because you can have your idea and see, okay, we can, uh, with that, we can find a treatment for a pathology, and but then you have to test it and be, and, and uh, <laughs> be sure that it's like what you thought. But at the beginning, it's like a bit of gambling, yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. with some proof, uh, not uh, all uh, for with uh, only luck and probability, but uh, with some proof and yeah. preliminary data. But uh, yeah, it can be similar to that feeling, probably. <laughs> In your labs, I know that you, you said to me before you manage your team. What do your team actually do in the lab? Like, how do you get some neurons in a petri dish and poke them with a thin stick? What do you actually, can you put that into like more probably professional terms? How, how and what do they actually do for your research? Actually, they do several different things. There are some of them that are building the treatment, the tool to be tested. And so we'll be more pipetting with the pipette and all the tubes and all these things on the bench. There are people that they test in the, the, the Petri dish if if the treatment works. And so they are approaching the cells with the, with the glass pipette, as, as we said before, <laughs> and try to understand if they can make that the neurons are changed after the treatment. And then there are people that obviously they test as well in animal models to be sure that the treatment works to stop the seizures and to, to rescue also the behavioral comorbidities. With the petrodish and with like the poking of the, of the neurons, can you like tell us how big these things are? So you said petri dish. I always think of like sperm and eggs, like in IVF. So <laughs> it's the same kind of... petri dish. It's the same petri dish, but <laughs> actually inside of this petri dish, you have hundreds of thousands of neurons connected to each other that are very small. A neurons is very small. A neurons is between 100 times and 1,000 times of a millimeter, smaller than a millimeter. So very, very small. And we use very, very small uh, pipette, glass pipette that we, we, we create with a, with a specific machinery that create this pipette that are a diameter of one micron, so a thousand times smaller than a, mi- a millimeter. That sounds nuts. That's so, so, like, it reminds me of when um, you, we see pictures, uh, a bit like mini films, but it's like, which show the size of the Earth, and you compare the Earth to Jupiter, and then you compare it to the Sun, and then you compare it to the galaxy, then Andromeda, and it's like, oh my God, we are really, really tiny. That's the kind of feeling that I get with you describing the, the size of um, the neurons and your pipette thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 if you consider that the size is uh, one meter, yeah, one millimeter, so what you basically you can see in your ruler is a kilometer. So it's a huge the difference between... Uh, one millimeters and the size of the cell. Yeah, and I guess it's also not going to be squiggling around like a sperm is either. No, so no, it's even attached. harder to identify. Yeah. <laughs> no, they are attached 
to the petri dish they have some uh, materials that they like a lot and they stay attached there they like it what do you mean they like the material what do you they have something on their their uh, membrane of the cells that is attracted to this uh, solution that we we coated the, the petri dish with ah okay okay well so it's almost a bit like it sticks to it it sticks or... yeah we can say this sticks. yes all right i think i'm like reinventing layman's terms here how long have you been doing the specific studies that you're currently doing? And what does it take to get something from your lab to a clinician to a patient where they test out your theories? Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, okay. it's a bit complicated as answer because I have several different projects that are different stage. Yeah. But uh, I can speak about one that is more close to clinic. I started three, four years ago having the idea of developing this treatment and say, ah, this can be very good for for patients with focal epilepsy. Then I applied for funding. Now, after three years and a half of experiments, we have some data that are very encouraging and and that are going in the direction that seems that is really working for decreasing seizures in temporal lobe epilepsy, for example. We patented this approach and we got the investment for the next two years to refine the treatment to then start the clinical trials. So I think that in maybe not two years, but in three years, probably we'll be able to start the clinical trial with this. So it means that... Uh, Overall, from uh, my idea to the patient is seven years, more or less seven, eight years. That is not uh, so long compared to other approaches. I think that I've been lucky to be in this department where there are already other approaches that are very close to the patients. And so I, we have like a pipeline and we know exactly what to do at which stage. So it will be faster, probably. How many projects do you have going at the moment? Because I was going to ask that question, you know, what research do you have planned for the next year? But it sounds you've got like a million things in the pipeline already. I think that uh, <laughs> I have made probably too many projects. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, nine, nine, ten people working with me. Yeah, more or less I will have 20, 25 projects going on. That yeah. just like stresses me out, just the thought of that. That's amazing. <laughs> managing them but <laughs> one main project and the other side project can you give are you allowed to give us any hints of what those projects are or is it all behind closed doors at the moment there uh, there are some that are behind closed doors because there are mm. patenting and, and things like that involved but yeah we we have different kind of project we have projects to that uh, are the aim of this project is trying to understand for example why in Dravet syndrome that is severe child with the epilepsy, why the seizures, why these patients develop seizures that is not mm. known how, what happened to the brain because is, is, uh, these patients, the, the seizures start like uh, when they are six months old, one year old, mm. but we don't know how they arrive to that point where they start the seizure. And that obviously that will help trying to find a new treatment. Or we are developing, uh, for example, uh, new gene therapies for several different kind of epilepsy, not only temporal lobe, but also cortical malformation, other genetic diseases. After that, yeah, we have also some drug testing 
for example, for uh, trying to find uh, some drugs that can help patients with the status epilepticus to not develop chronic epilepsy after status epilepticus. Oh, that would be great. Because I'm just thinking of like one of my friends who has, not that there is such things as regular epilepsy at all, but he has a, a, and it's not a rare epilepsy, but he keeps going into status epilepticus. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like that is truly dangerous. So if you can figure out how we can put a stop to that utterly ridiculous behavior of the brain, that would be fantastic. That is one of the other projects that is going on. Yeah, we are trying also to create new models to understand better how the treatment will work in humans, creating mini brains, human mini brains, mini brains in a dish. I guess you have to have basic bits of cadaver brain, right? Is that right? So if people no. donate their... No? Oh, okay. How do you do it? <laughs> Actually, this is a technique that was developed a few years ago. It's basically, you can take skin samples from a patient, so yeah. cells from the skin, and using genetic engineering, basically you can transform these cells from the skin into neurons from the brain. And oh, my God. Basically, the idea is because, obviously, a person his own DNA, right? Each person is his own DNA that is unique. But uh, each cell in the body of a person has the same DNA. If you take uh, a, a cell from the skin, they will have the same DNA of the neurons of the brain of the same patients. So obviously we cannot take a piece of brain from a patient, but what we can do, we can take the skin of the patients, transform the cells in the skin and say to them, no, you're not, you are not a skin cell, so you are a neuron. And they say, okay, and, uh, and they, they, we can transform them in neurons, and they will have exactly the same DNA of the neurons of the patient. So we can uh, understand the mutation, for example, changing DNA in patients with epilepsy from uh, the cells of the skin that we transform in neurons. So, okay, and this is kind of like varying off a bit, but so somebody had, was like, had done, given themselves a bit of a pedicure and like taken some skanky skin off their foot, would that skin be okay? Or if they had a facelift, would you take that like wrinkly old skin? What type of skin would you need? Uh, uh, you need a fibroblast from, from the skin and actually it's a subdermal just uh, under the skin. There are, there are a lot of methods that can also uh, transform uh, cells that you can find in urine or uh, or also I think from the air from the follicle of the, your hair and wow. from saliva you can you are, you can be able to transform them into neurons actually this this technique is quite powerful because you can take a cells from the skin and then uh, before you say you are a neuron so you say you can be whatever you want <laughs> you can transform them in, in, uh, in a state where they be can become all the cells in the body that you want. And you can decide which cells you, can, you want to create with the DNA of the patient where you, you took the, the, the skin from. This is so cool. So, um, and would this sort of apply then, and then I'm veering off again, but like say somebody needed a I don't know, heart transplant and they were going to kind of die because there wasn't a suitable donor around. Could you, in theory 
grow their heart. Yeah, yeah, there, there are groups that are doing things like this for sure. You can uh, reprogram cells in the cells that you need, and you can retransplant back to the patients. We can't yet do this for brains as a whole, though, can we? Or like for lobes, because you kind of are the pre-existing connections in between your neurons. Is that right? There are groups that are trying to do that, uh, so trying to use a uh, cell neurons transplantation in the brain. But uh, actually, the problem of the brain, as you say, are that is there is a lot of connections and uh, the neurons have to be in the specific place to do their function. Uh, so it's not really easy to reintroduce them. There are obviously other organs like the, the skin, for example, liver is more easy because yeah. they are all the same cells and they don't need uh, an organization so precise as neurons. There was this lady in America a few years ago who had her face ripped off by a chimp. Did you hear about that? No. She had a pet chimpanzee, which is another topic. But anyway, the chimp, <laughs> the chimp became, became not very happy and it ripped her arms off or her hands off and it ripped her face off. And she had to have a face transplant. I'm just thinking, you know, in the future, people like her, apart from being idiots and horrible for having <laughs> chimps, she could have her own face regrown, potentially. Yeah, yeah. There, there, are, there are a lot of research in this field, for sure. Tell me, why do you do what you do? What makes you come into work every day? Like, why do you not stop? Because, you know, there could be something that earns you more money. Why do you continue doing what you do? But I'm doing what I'm doing because I like the, the research and I like the feeling of uh, finding new things. And obviously, now that I'm working more on, the, on finding new treatment, I have also thinking about that I'm, I will do a difference in patient's life is something that uh, when I wake up in the morning will help me for sure to, to go to work and do my best to, to do my research. So... I, I'm curious in general and I like research. Plus, if this research will benefit the patients with, with the severe pathology, I think that is a plus for sure that uh, keep me in the, in the academia and doing what I'm doing. That means so much to us. And I, and I hope that's also an encouragement for people considering going into your field. And uh, as I said to somebody else the other day, I don't think we should let our inner child go. It's okay to say, but why, why, why? Because that's what keeps us going as well in research, is it not? You need you need to ask a lot of questions and be always ready to ask questions and uh, and from the, the answer ask another questions and uh, <laughs> continues to investigate. Without that, we will never find new things. Obviously. <laughs> so, if people want to learn more about you and more about your work and that of your team, what should they do? Where should they go? Yeah, they can go to my website, for example, lignanilab.com. Easy, cool. <laughs> it's very mm. And also the, the, the Department of Clinical Experimental Epilepsy website and then the UCL website. And uh, so you can see also what my colleagues are doing because we are a big department with 50 people working in different aspects of, uh, of epilepsy. Well, thank you so, so very much. And um, we will speak again, no doubt, soon. If anybody is listening to this but all would prefer to read more about Gabriel we have a we're going to be putting some of this into writing which will be on the epilepsy sparks website and also we'll be featuring on our social media as well bye thank you Tori bye bye
It's been really cool to learn just a little about Gabrielle's epilepsy research. Check out the links below to learn more about him on his lab website slash social media channels. Next week, I shall be talking to the Professor of Epileptology and Neurophysiology at the Danish Epilepsy Centre and Aas University Hospital Denmark, Professor Sandor Benixi. Sandor should be telling us about his roles, why he enjoys them and how the research taking place today will change the world for people with epilepsy in the future. Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook and we'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Do subscribe to our podcast and know that we are always trying to improve what we are doing here for the programme. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>